Good morning and Merry Christmas. I mean, when you have trees that sprout up from your stage with lights on them, it's Christmas time. And that's what this is. So I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and a great Black Friday, which isn't a Black Friday anymore. I mean, back in the day, you had riots and people uh, camping out before Best Buy all night, and they just got rid of all that. So now they have Black Week, I think. Is it Black? Because it started early in the week, and you see all these big screen TVs sitting at um, Target, and they were still there yesterday <laughs> at a high discount. And uh, that's not the way Black Friday is supposed to work. It's supposed to be crazy chaos. And... Um, but times change. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love for, uh, to get some information from you. There's a, a connection card underneath the chair in front of you. Just fill that out and turn it in. If you want to know more about the church or if you have a prayer request or something of that nature, just fill it out. You can turn it in the box in the back, which is where we take offerings, or you can fill it out electronically. So welcome, and uh, please be a part of this ministry in some way. Just get active somewhere and... Uh, be a part of the body. So we're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 15, 16, and 17. Colossians chapter 4, verses 15, 16, and 17. It says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphos, and the church that is in his house. Now when the epistle is read among you, see to it that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for your word and its truth. Pray, Lord, that we will understand what it is that we are to do as your children, as those believers in your name, that we're to be a light into this world and that you are using us and making us into who we are supposed to be uh, to speak your truth. And I pray for CF that that truth will be spoken this morning through him and that we may receive it and uh, go out and do as we're called. I just say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you're visiting with us, we'd like to welcome you. We're doing a study through the book of Colossians, and uh, we're going to be covering verses 15 through 17, those verses that were read, looking at how to finish strong, because that's what uh, Paul's counsel to him is, to finish, fulfill the ministry that's been granted to him, and the importance in our own life about finishing strong, staying true to the end. And... Uh, Paul is uh, covering this and speaking to these people in ministry, people that, you know, we might not have heard much about, but they are critical and very important to the ministry that Paul has. We're going to take a look at that this morning. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity that's set before us. Father, grant unto us understanding to your word. Pray, Father, as I teach your word, that you'd keep me uh, from error, help me to explain it clearly and accurately. And then, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make application into the hearts and lives of the people that are here, that they would receive it with gladness, we do pray. And so, Father, I ask and I pray this of you in Jesus Christ's name, Lord. Amen. Amen. 
We began here. Paul says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha and the church that is in his house. He previously has mentioned other places too. If you look back at uh, verse 13, he says, for I bear him witness, speaking of Epaphras, who's likely Epaphroditus. He says, for I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. When at the outset of the book of Colossians, we did a kind of an overview and I gave you a general picture of where this has taken place. This has actually taken place in what we call modern day Turkey. I think most people are familiar with that. In Paul's day and time, it was referred to as Asia Minor, is what it was referred to as a picture of Turkey. Up to the north of Turkey is Greece. And if you come down on the right-hand side of the screen there, you'll come to Syria, which is the next uh, uh, big area that they were concerned with. Specifically, these little cities, we'll go ahead and go to the next picture there, are pictured right here. And you can see, uh, if you go over here to this left side, you see Troas, Smyrna, Ephesus. And then you see the word Laodicea. Laodicea is actually in the country further. Colossae, where this letter is being written, is right below Laodicea. Heropolis is the city right above Laodicea. And then you go straight up that map, you got Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum. And then you got the regions of Pamphylia along the southern coastline, Cilicia, and then you get up to the region of Galatia where you see Iconium and Derby. And you see Antioch up there. There are two Antiochs. One is Antioch of Turkey, and the other is Antioch of Syria. Go back to the previous map real quick. If you'll look at the northern part up there around Syria, you'll see a little area called Antioch right there. That's a different Antioch. It was actually over in that day and time, it was in Syria. Now it's in Turkey. Antioch is what they call the cradle of Christianity. That's where, that was kind of their headquarters that they operated out of when they were in that region. Go back to the second map again. You see Tarsus, that's where Paul was educated. So he was familiar with that area. But you can see if they wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, it would be nothing to take that letter to Laodicea. And then from Laodicea to Heropolis, Philadelphia, just go right on up through that area there. Those were all areas of major churches, okay? So that kind of gives you a geographical orientation to where we are. If you look at your text in, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. So this, this letter is being sent to Colossae, but he's telling the people in Colossae, greet the brothers that are in Laodicea. The word there for greet means to embrace. It means to show true affection for someone. Brethren speaks to the fact that these people are not physical brothers, but they are spiritual brothers. The word brethren is used often in Christian writing to speak of a relationship. A brother physically is somebody that comes from the same mother. Okay? That would, a male that comes from the same mother. That would be considered a brother. That's a physical relationship. 
Well, that physical relationship is used in a spiritual sense also. And when you are born of God, just like in a physical sense, you're born of woman. In a spiritual sense, you're born of God. And if you're born of God, every believer that is born of God is your brother or sister. And so when Paul says brother or brethren, that's what he's talking about. It's be another way of saying, greet your fellow Christians. Where? Who are in Laodicea. Greet those people in Laodicea. And Nymphus and the church that meets in his house. Now, Nymphus was head of a, what we call a house church. And the idea behind the house church is that was the common arrangement in the New Testament. A lot of people, when they read the Bible, will tend to look at the Bible from an American point of view, which is pretty natural. We look at it from an American point of view. When you say church, most people think of a physical building is what they think of. When Paul says the church that is in his house, he's talking about the believers that are in that house. The word church, ecclesia, means those that have been called out of the world unto God. Okay? Now, in our culture today, when you say church, most of the time what people think of is they think of a physical building. In Paul's day and time, there were no physical buildings set aside specifically for churches. There is no written record or historical record of freestanding churches prior to the third century. Prior to the third century, all churches met in a house. So it'd be a very or somewhat informal setting, it'd be an informal relationship. Very similar to what we do with small groups where people come over and meet someone's house, they share a meal together, and after sharing a meal, they share the word, that kind of a thing. That was very common in Paul's day and time. And so in this specific case, the church met in a house. And so it gives you an idea, contrast that with church today, people think of church as a distinct separate thing in life. Okay, they don't think of it so much as a part of life. Because I have people a lot of time I'll talk to them and they'll find out I pastor a church or I'll tell them I do. And they say, oh, yeah, where's your church? And they say, I'm going to come see you. Now, 90% of people say that don't ever come. But that's kind of a way to get you away from them or something. Uh, but the ones that do often ask this question, what do I wear? And I say, clothes. It'd be preferable. Just don't come naked. That's, a, that's the main thing. The idea you are to see is, how do you think these people dress when they went to someone's house? They just dressed in something that was comfortable. I mean, how do you dress when you go to someone's house? You just wear what you have on, right? No specific thing. But in America, with a freestanding church, separate from everything else, it is viewed in a different way. And I'm just trying to get you to see how the New Testament viewed it. They would meet in a house, and so what would happen is, Everyone in there would know each other, but these churches would grow. These were these people would grow and they would expand. And what they would do is split and go into other houses and it would expand like that. And eventually one day someone said, you know, we need to have a separate meeting place. In some occasions, the church would meet at the synagogue. If there wasn't a lot of persecution from the Jews, they would go down and use synagogues to meet. But 
that was a very rare thing. So most of the time they met in homes. Look at Romans 16, 5. Right, we're going back up to verse 3. Go to Romans 16 and uh, look at verse 3. Romans 16, 3. He says, uh, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. You see direct reference there to the church meeting in their house. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, you have a, you have a similar situation there. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia greet you. That would be the groups of believers greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord and the church that is in their house. Having a house to meet in is how the churches were done in the early New Testament. Even today in many parts of the world, house churches are the thing. For example, you go to China, the, the big movement in China is house churches. And a lot of it has to do with the persecution. And they meet in homes. And the reason for that is they can meet undercover to a certain extent and keep it pretty quiet. But these churches are growing like crazy in China. And as a matter of fact, many people say that the Christian population in China could very well outnumber the population of all people in America. That's how large the church is exploding over there in China. Why is that? What is one of the contributing factors to the growth of the church? Persecution. Persecution is a key factor. What happens? Purifies the church. Persecution always purifies the church. What advantage is it to go and meet with a group of people if you're going to get thrown in prison for it? Why risk that? You know, if you're not really committed in that relationship or in your walk with the Lord, why would you put yourself in danger or in jeopardy? And so what happens is the weak hands tend to leave and move off and the stronger members of the body cling together. And what happens with that? They become stronger and they become more, more mighty. You see that also in many parts of the world. Take the magazine Voice of the Martyrs. Most of those people that meet and those churches are meeting in homes is where they meet. And so that was a very common arrangement. So Paul says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, the word that is used here for read is the word anagonosko. It's a compound word, break it down. Ana means emphatic, gonosko means to know. And the idea behind anakonosko means to read intently and read with purpose. To read emphatically and to know. You would say it like this. You read it, you read it again, and you continue to read it. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean just take a cursory look at it and pass on. For example, I read the newspaper this morning, or I read that article. And what that simply means is you just read through the article. The word here for read means much more than that. 
It means an intense, emphatic focus on a continual basis over and over again. So what he's saying is when this epistle is read among you, in other words, all the many times that it's read, because see this, this little epistle to Colossae would be a one page letter. Okay. It was written on one page most likely. And what they would do is Paul finished the letter, gave it to his little carrier. I think it was Tychicus, I think in this case, and he carries the letter to Colossae. When he would get the letter there to Colossae, they would read it to the church and then they would make a copy of that letter and they would go around and disseminate that to all the other churches around them. That's how the word was spread in that day and time. What was the advantage of reading like that? The advantage was this. The Apostle Paul never has record of having gone to the church at Colossae. He went to Ephesus. He actually pastored at Ephesus for a while, but he never went to Colossae. Yet he could write a letter and that letter being inspired of God could be instructive to them. It was no different than if he had been right there reading it to him himself. Same thing today as we read this letter to the church at Colossae. It's just as if Paul's sitting here speaking to us. And that's what Paul did. That was the advantage of those letters being passed around. Those letters would go from church to church to church and be read over and over and over again. Why would they be read like that? Because those letters are the revelation of God. They are the instruction of God. That's what the Word of God is about. You know, the Bible tells us that the Word of God, that it is God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, correction, uh, guidance for life. And what that simply means is the Word of God is God's revelation to man. What does that mean, revelation? It means this. Man cannot know about God accurately and correctly, but what God reveals about himself. Why? Because man has fallen. And because man has fallen, he will always distort God to an image or a likeness that's compatible with man. And almost invariably, that's what takes place. You'll hear it in comments like, People say, well, I don't know why God would do something like that. Or how could God do something like that? The, the reason is God is not man. God doesn't think like man. Man wants a manageable deity. Man wants something he can control. That's just the nature of man. A lot of people like the image of God as being a servant to man. God's here to serve you. God's here to make your day bright. God's here to make you happy. God's here to make you wealthy. God's purpose here on earth is to meet whatever your newest desire is. He's to take you through life and give you a smooth road. See, that's man's image of God. You read the biblical image of God, far different than that. God's purpose and plan is to bring glory to himself. I scratched my mic and it came off. Excuse me. That's God's purpose. So you always want to go by the revelation of God because God reveals, number one, what he's like. Number two, he reveals what he expects those that follow him to do. That's why the word of God is important. 
The word of man is fine, but the word of man should not be a guide for life. The word of God should be your guide for life. And anything a man says about the word of God should be seriously examined in light of the word of God. See, the criteria for right or wrong is not whether it makes you feel good. The criteria for right or wrong is whether it's an accurate representation of what God says. That's what's important. And many times the word of God, just to be honest with you, is not going to make you feel good. All right. Because we are contrary to God. We go in an opposite direction from God. And the word of God serves to move us back on the right pathway. As the psalmist said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light for my pathway. God's word directs us in how to live and how to go about life. That's why he wants this letter read. This letter is instructional. Primarily the epistles were correctional. They were most of the time they were addressing some kind of error. OK. And so the epistles are basically constructed. The first half of the epistle gives you theological truth about God or what God has done. The second half of the epistle is applicational. How does this look? And so when you read this epistle, you get to the pivot there in chapter three, verses one through four. And he says, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And you get there in verse five and it says, therefore, put to death your members which are on this earth. So you see that's applicational. And verses one through four is the pivot of the book. The book chapters one and two leads up to three verses one through four. And in verse or chapter three, verse five to the end of the book is application of the doctrine that you learned in chapters one and two. And that's most commonly how epistles were constructed. They were laid out in a very clear manner to address a specific issue, but that is applicable to all. So though he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae, he says, you go read this letter in Laodicea, let them know. And you read it in Fellowship of Huntsville. And that's what we're doing. You see, because what's applicable to believers there is applicable to believers now. Even if he's dealing with a specific issue, the overall thrust of the letter is to instruct us about who God is. And number two, what does God expect of us? What does he want us to do? So he says, you go and you read this and read it and read it again. And see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was a letter coming back. We don't have any record of it. Don't know what it said. But there was a letter that was written there and sent back. And he said, you read that one too. So Paul obviously had accepted it. You know, it's interesting to note. You look at those churches up there. Smyrna, Thyatira, Ephesus, Laodicea. And you'll see those churches mentioned again in the book of the Revelation. This letter is being written in about 62 A.D. The book of Revelation is written around 90. And you notice that in 30 years, those churches went from being the hub, the center, the very focus of all Christianity to where now they have fallen by the wayside. And God is having to correct that whole group of people. Didn't take long 
for that to happen. To go from the cradle of Christianity to the point of what? Rebuke from the Lord. Especially the church at Laodicea. He said, y'all have gotten lukewarm. You've died on the vine. You're not functional like I should. Church at Ephesus, your love's grown cold. So this, this stuff happened in a very short 20, 30 year period of time. They, they hit the rocks and they had to be corrected. So you go through here and he comes to verse 17 and he says, and so he says, read the letter and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry. So Archippus has some type of a ministry that has taken place there in that place. Uh, and he says to him, he says, say, the word say is an aorist imperative. So what he's saying is this, command Archippus. Command Archippus to take heed. The word take heed is the word bleepo. Very kind of unusual word. But it means to look and behold with intensity or focus. When he says take heed to the ministry, what he's telling him is, you focus on your ministry and you keep that as a priority, Archippus. It's also an imperative. And so he's commanded him. He's commanding the person that's going. He says, I command you to speak to Archippus. And Archippus, I command you to focus intently on your ministry. Now, the word for ministry there is the word dikonia, and it means a gift from God. So the ministry is viewed as a gift from God to Archippus to the people that are around him. And that's what ministry is. Ministry is one of the key focuses of Scripture that God expects. And so he instructs Archippus here, you focus on the ministry, and look at this, which you have received in the Lord. So Archippus was appointed to do this specific work for God. You realize that every Christian has a ministry and you are to take heed of the ministry that you have, okay? Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 12. I covered this in my Sunday school class today, but I will cover it again here. Romans 12, 1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That, those words, reasonable service, means ministry. Your ministry and my ministry is to do what? It's to present yourself to God a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. It means to surrender yourself to the Lord and to serve Him. Why do we serve God? Why are we expected to do ministry? Because God has purchased us. When God bought us with the blood of Jesus Christ, or as the scripture says, redeemed us with the blood of Christ, he redeemed us to himself and he expects us to live our life for him. How do we know that? Well, we know it from a lot of places in the Bible, but in Colossians 3, the passage I just read, if you were raised with Christ, if you were redeemed by Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? You died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. 
do your ministry. Your ministry is your service to God. And we're to all be doing ministry and to take heed to that ministry. The important thing to understand is most ministry that is done is not real visible from the outside. Now, how can we know that? Well, when I say the letter to the church at Colossae, who do you primarily think of? You think of Archippus? When I say turn to the book of Colossians, oh, Archippus helped Paul. In that you don't think of Archippus. What about Tychicus? You think of him? I don't think of him. Demas? Epaphras? No. Look back at those verses real quick. Look back at Colossians 4, 7. Tychicus, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. He's a co-worker with Paul. Then you get to verse 9. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And verse 11, Jesus, who's called Justice. Verse 12, Epaphras. You go down to verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So you see, all these people were doing ministry, and Paul even referred to them as co-laborers, as assistants, as those doing and having just as much importance as him. And yet you don't see them. You don't hear about them. You wouldn't even know about them if Paul hadn't mentioned them. Yet that's the key to ministry right there. In order for ministry to be successful, it takes a lot of people that aren't seen behind the scenes. When you think of children's ministry in this church, who, who do you think of? You think of Beth Prim. When you think of student ministry, who do you think of? You think of Tim Ramsey. But you understand that whether it's the ministry that I do, that Tim does, that Beth does, that BJ does, there are a lot of people behind the scenes that are doing work that you would never see ministry if it wasn't for those people. Ministry means service to God. Ministry means giving yourself wholly to Him. And so he tells Archippus, Archippus, you take heed to the ministry which you have received. And the word there means a gift from God. Your ministry is a gift from God has, is allowing you to minister on his behalf unto other people. Why is that a gift? It's a gift for this reason, folks. None of us deserve the right nor the privilege to do that because we are all worthless before God. Ministry is done through the power of God working through you. Note, note, the, note the words in that. Look at verse 17. Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received, which has been a gift to you in the Lord. And he says, that you may fulfill it. The word there, fulfill, is the word paralambano. Paralambano, a compound word which means beside and to appropriate. And so, as he talks about the word receive, he's talking about you've been given this ministry 
Now you need to fulfill it. You need to fulfill it. Bring it to completion. Finish strong. Stay on top. Look over at Acts real quick. Look at Acts chapter 20. I'm going to show you something in Acts chapter 20. This is a neat little verse. It's kind of tucked away in the book of Acts. But it's very important. I want to back up. I, first service, I just read that verse. But I want to go back to, uh, go to Acts 20 and look at verse, well, let me see here. Look at uh, verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except the Holy Spirit testified in every city, saying that chains and tribulation awaits me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see what Paul's saying there in that passage? This ministry has been given to me by God. All ministry is given by God. And so what does God tell our chippers? Take heed to the ministry which has been gifted to you in the Lord that you may fulfill it, to complete it, to carry it out to its end. That's the idea of the Christian life, folks, is to finish strong, finish good. And understand this, many times we start out fast and then we start hitting the rough patches in life and there comes the tendency, what, for people to fall away. Look at Demas. You get to the book of 2 Timothy, which is about, I don't know, five, six years later. And what's he say about Demas? Demas has forsaken me. He's bugged out. He's gone the other way. He's not in the ministry anymore. Jesus spoke about this. Look in Luke 14. In Luke chapter 14, the Lord speaks about this, about the importance of discipleship, the importance of keeping the ministry that is set before you. Verse 25 of Luke 14, it says, And great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let's set one thing straight first. When Jesus is teaching this right here, he's not laying out how does a person come to faith in Christ, okay? He's not saying that before you trust in Jesus Christ, you better, you got to hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters and all this stuff. He's also not saying this that you're to hate your mother and father, hate your brother and sister, hate everyone in life, including yourself. Look at the next verse. He says, and verse 27, I'm sorry, back up verse 26, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So he's not saying to come to faith in Christ, you gotta hate your family, hate your friends and hate yourself. What he's using in that passage, folks, is hyperbole. The emphasis of the passage is this. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, and a follower of Christ is your sanctification, is living out your Christian life, okay? 
Your salvation is a gift from God. You're given that when you trust in Christ. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God births you into his family and you're part of his family. It is a work of God whereby he puts you into relationship with him. That's your justification. Your sanctification begins at that point until the Lord calls you home. That is discipleship. Discipleship comes after your justification. And what he's saying in this passage by using this hyperbole is when it comes to your relationship to Christ, it's got to be number one. The word there that is poorly translated hate would be better translated like this. You've got to love Christ more than you love anything else in your life. Even something as close as a family relationship and even yourself. You've got to prioritize your life if you're going to be a disciple. If you're going to take heed to the ministry, Archippus, make the ministry, your relationship with God, number one. And do it continually. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Then he gives you an illustration. Look what he says. Well, he says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost of whether he's able to finish it? Lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So what is he saying there? He's saying if you're going to follow Christ, you better understand the commitment that it takes. It's just like a guy building a tower. You better prioritize finishing that tower or you're going to fail in the process. If you're a commander in combat, you better evaluate the situation carefully or you're going to fail. What he's saying is understand what you're getting into and understand what it takes to get to the end of it. Because he summarizes it in the next verse. Look at it. Verse 33. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What he's saying in this passage is not to hate people because there's verses that say what? Honor your mother and father. Love your brother and sister. So what does that mean? It means that if your number one priority when it comes to following God and doing ministry is not God, you're going to fail. That's what he's saying. Prioritize. Our biggest struggle is what? Ourself. Because, see, if you're completely devoted to the Lord, you know what will happen? You'll love your mother and father. You'll love your brother and sister. If you're fully devoted to the Lord, how will you view yourself in need of God's grace every day? You'll realize your desires and priorities come second to those of God. That's what love in Christ is all about. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is giving yourself wholly to the Lord. Now look back at our passage at Archippus. Let's look at it again. Archippus, take heed. Take heed. Look, behold, prioritize to the ministry which you have received in the Lord so that you will complete it. 
What he's telling our chippers is, keep your priorities straight. And that would be the message to us today. If you want to finish strong, the key to fulfilling ministry is what? Having the proper priorities. Prioritizing that relationship first and foremost. Why? I'll tell you why. The word there, fulfill, is in the subjunctive mood. And what that means is it may or may not take place. It's not a certainty. You will fulfill your ministry, Archippus, if you prioritize and make it first. But Archippus, if you don't do that, you won't fulfill the ministry. You will fail in the process. All these things are critical in finishing strong. The key to the Christian life is learn how to prioritize your life. What is the most important thing? In my life, my relationship with Christ. And then comes what? Other commanded relationships in Scripture. Love your brother, love your sister, honor your parents. All these things come second to what? Relationship with Christ. Because if I get the relationship with Christ right and prioritize that, the rest of these relationships will be fulfilled because they're all commanded by Christ. So what he's telling us is prioritize if you want to fulfill. Focus if you want to fulfill. Put the proper things first in life if you want to fulfill and be successful. Paul did that. Look at 2 Timothy. You look at Paul at the end of his life, what he wrote. He wrote beginning in verse 6 of the fourth chapter. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. That word departure means the loosening of the ropes of a ship at a dock or the taking down of a tent. Paul says, My life is coming to an end. My life is coming to a completion. But this is the testimony of my life. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. In other words, I kept the ministry. And I've kept the faith. And finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I finished. And how did Paul finish? He prioritized things. He took heed. What is Paul telling Archippus? Finish well, Archippus. And you will finish well if you take heed to what is most important and focus on that. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and our prayer is, Lord, that we would finish well. That we would fulfill the ministry which you have given us. That we would find ourselves busy doing the things that you've called us to do. Wherever you have put us, Lord, that we be the light and the salt. That we be found faithful. That we be consistent. That we prioritize our relationship to you above any earthly relationship that we may have. No matter how dear that relationship may be. For we know that if we prioritize our relationship with you, our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our family, our relationship with our friends will fall into place. So help us get our priorities right. Help us to fulfill the ministry you've given us. And might we be found faithful as Paul was to finish the race, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, for there's laid up for us a crown of righteousness. Let us focus on what's important and be found faithful to do that. 
And I pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen. Yeah. 